0: Ladies and gents, welcome to the Xan Man review of Major Fest, where we come to the very ending of thrill zone versus turmoil fwf season two but it doesn't end here we have one more stop after this but it is the grand papa of them all as we review both shows and decide the winner of the clash of the biggest pay-per-view show of the year but we will get to that in a second first i want to do a little recap where i say Shout out to Mark for stepping up in the way he did. That first show was a little bit of a doozy, but I really enjoy the way he kind of turned it around. And even though he isn't doing it alone, I do think he deserves credit. The way he presents, the way he throws the thoughts out there, and the way he sets it all up together is a big deal for the show. And it helps present this new Thrill Zone show, this new format, in the best way possible. So a big shout out to Mark. And then a big shout out to Broski. We saw him make adjustments throughout the year. And even though he hasn't been spot on, even though it does seem like the time constraints do limit him just a little bit. I do think he has, as of this point, as of this recording, before Major Fest, the pay per view of the year, because all 30 minutes of that collusion collision were absolutely brilliant. The backstage segments, the championship match, and the collusion collision match itself, it was just exactly what it needed to be, and is the perfect audible pay-per-view out there so far there's a reason why it won the pay-per-view of the year last year and I think it's a high contender for this year and so I think going into this it is way up in the air because we have no time limits folks they can go as long as they want every bit of information they want to squeeze out every bit of match detail they want to throw out there they are able to do it and I think that gives Broski an advantage, even though a lot of people are saying that Thrill Zone ran away with it this season. I don't think that's the case. I think each show has came come down to one or two segments or one or two details at times. Um, sometimes it does come down to the little choices that they make. That truly pushes it in favor of one pay per view or the other. And so we are gonna find out today who wins the Clash of Major Fest. We've waited long enough. Let's get into it with the first show. We start off Major fest with the Turmoil Brand, who opens up with their Fatal 4-Way Tag Team Championship match. The champions, of course, are the Body Donnas, and they took it from the Dudley Boys, who are looking to get their championships back. So it's those two, with Teston, Albert, and the Headbangers filling in the other two teams. Um... The result ends up being after Sonny ends up getting nailed by the title due to a miscue by the body Donnas. The Headbangers hit a stage dive after the other teams are down to become the new championships. And I guess you could be say that this was a they finally got it done story because they had been kind of within the tag team division throughout the entire season. But this this match led me to have a singular question on the turmoil brand, was there ever a tag team championship match that just featured only two tag teams that had a story between them and they were fighting to be to see who was the best tag team? Um and I don't know. it just it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth throughout the season of the tag division. And so I feel like, this particular match didn't mean as much as it could have like yeah last uh last month we had the body donnas uh revealing themselves and becoming the new tag team championships and so that inserted a little bit of excitement But I don't think we ever had an actual storyline over the tag titles. Uh, I do think it was credible to put them on the Dudley Boys and everything. Uh, But after a certain point, you can't use the not having weeklies as an excuse to not build the tag division. And the only storyline that really came from it ended up being a singles match between Cold Dust and D'Lo Brown later on in the night. And so this match legitimately didn't have any stakes to it other than the championship. And it didn't feel like a major fest match to... um, any extent, in my personal opinion. Uh, It was a bit of a letdown. I would have liked to, at least last month, maybe the Body Donnas come in at the end and beat down the Dudley Boys, and it ends up being a tag team championship between the two of them. But, uh, I don't know, I just... It didn't feel like it should have, and maybe that's just my personal take on it or anything, but there was a in in terms of the tag team division this season on FWF, it really feels like there were some questionable decisions on behalf of Matt. Uh, the only thing I would take away is I do like that it felt kind of like the Headbangers had finally gotten it done. They had kind of stolen the show from the past couple of tag team matches, whether it was a fa- one of the 80 Fatal Four Ways that they had for the tag team division or that gauntlet match. It always seemed like they got... Very close just to have the rug pulled out from underneath them. But for like the first three months of the of the season, I'm pretty sure it was just Fatal 4-Way, four-way, Fatal 4-Way, four-way, Fatal 4-Way. Four-way. Um, and it the first one meant a lot because Edge and Christian won that first initial Fatal 4-Way and became the champions. But then you immediately are like, nah, not that story. <laughs> and you kind of pull the rug out from underneath it. And I felt like every single time you got some kind of story going in the tag division this season that was kind of the result. And so, it didn't mean as much as it could have been, but at least there was the highlight or the light in the distance, something to take away of the head headbangers felt like they kind of deserved to win this match. Looking at everybody on the on the roster, which I'm a huge test fan, I would have liked to see him and Albert get their due, but they kind of did just feel like lackeys for the full season, so they would have been the wrong call. So either the Dudley boys getting their titles back or the Headbangers, in my opinion, would have been the right call to kind of start the the night on a hype um, storyline-type deal. Match number two was Papa Shanga with the APA taking on Kane and The Undertaker, of course, the Brothers of Destruction. Um, and honestly, it... I. The, the ending part of the match was Undertaker hitting the last ride on somebody from the Gru and sealing the deal. It kind of felt like the Brothers of Destruction just destroyed Shango and the APA. Which kind of makes sense because when you get the Brothers of Destruction together, it is kind of a spectacle. Uh, for me personally, looking back on history and all of the matches I've saw with them, it's never really just a big back and forth occasion. It is just the Brothers of Destruction doing what their name suggests and destroying so i think this event really worked uh i would have liked to see papa shango become more of like the supernatural threat but if you are going to sacrifice him to the uh brothers of destruction i i do appreciate the way it was kind of handled i think kane's build and undertaker's build was very plain but very enjoyable and very well done throughout the entire season and so uh this is definitely something we would like to see uh it was kind of hinted at for the entire season, and then at Major Fest, we see these brothers wreak havoc all over these uh, villains of turmoil. Um, Papa Shango's accomplishments of supernatural ability—I decided apparently to write these in my notes—were a voodoo disappearance and scaring Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> so, at no point in my mind did I think he was going to be formidable against him, but. Um, I guess he didn't have to, uh, it would have, I would have never wanted it to be anything else. And I think Matt did a very good job of just making the brothers of destruction, as I already said, do exactly what their name suggests. A backstage segment saw Sonny firing the body Donna's and my first thought was, Oh no. Not after their long turmoil tenure, because as I just said, uh, the whole body Donna's thing left a little bit of sourness in my mouth because I felt like there could have been a different direction taken for the tag team division. But with the part that it plays later on in the show, I can't be too mad at this segment. Um, It's just setting up stuff for later, um, and that's all I can really say about it. So I can appreciate the segment now that I've seen the entire show, but when I first saw it, it was kind of a, oh, well, I'm not invested in it anyway. Anyway, we have the Vanishing Vault death match between Taz and Jeff Jarrett for the Hardcore Championship. And the rules are the person who puts their opponent in the Beetlejuice Vanishing Vault um, wins the match. And there's a lot of typical Jeff Jarrett match for Turmoil, which we all enjoy it <laughs> of Jeff chariot pretty much apparently for the, enjoy- the majority of the match just carrying around a guitar trying to hit somebody with it um and it just turns into interference station from there. You have the Dudleys, you have Test and Albert coming back in, which there's never any bad room for those two. You have Beetlejuice, Jeff Jarrett gets his hand on a flaming guitar. It looks like after the odds have been evened, they swing back into Jeff Jarrett's flavor. He's about to smash the flaming guitar over Taz's head, and Tommy Dreamer, an ECW original, comes out and seems like he's coming to the aid of Taz, but instead. instead Instead, takes the flaming guitar from Jarrett and nails Taz with it in his place. Showing that a betrayal has happened. And it kind of, you know... Obviously, that leads to Jeff Jarrett winning the match, and it's a big betrayal, a big moment, a big turning point. So we have a good couple of feel-good moments starting off the night, with the Headbangers finally winning the tag titles after getting 80 different attempts at Fatal 4-Way matches. And then the Brothers of Destruction just having that awe-inspiring performance of destroying whoever they go against. And so that's a good way of doing it, but we get our first adversity of the night with Jeff Jarrett getting... (laughs) ECW original to betray his brethren. I thought it was very effective. I definitely didn't see it coming. Whenever you saw Tommy Dreamer coming, I was like, yeah, the young upstart! Yeah, we get him back! And then whenever he announced that he joined Jeff Jarrett, I was like, oh dang, they set up the ECW, uh, shtick really well just to kind of turn it on its side and throw it back in your face i thought it was very well done it keeps jeff jarrett as the heel champion that we know he should be and he can be and hopefully if we have a season three he continues to have much more hijinks and we get to see some payoff from the tommy dreamer uh angle now we have a hollywood backlot brawl going on where Goldust uh, versus D'Lo I think it's a match And I could be wrong So don't quote me on this Where they start off in the parking lot And they end up making their way To the actual ring I don't know if that was the whole purpose of the match But at some point D'Lo beats down Goldust so bad And leaves him in the back lot To the point where it is decided That if Goldust can't make it down to the ring Within the 10 second count He forfeits the match Obviously, it's big, it's dramatic, and Goldust not only answers the call of ten, but emerges as the natural Dustin Rhodes, his makeup wearing... Uh, not make... <laughs> you know what I mean. Not wearing his makeup any more. The classic look. Uh, the man that his daddy could be proud of. Uh, he partakes in his dad's signature beatdown, and after a flurry, hits a curtain call to get his revenge. Um... I don't know, This is I, I like this one because Goldust versus Delo is one of the storylines has, that has been getting built the entire season. And it's very effective here, especially whenever you reveal that the Goldust, the one that uh, Brian used all last year to be comedic, he was all comedic this year. Uh, he's trying to find his place in the tag team division, and it's just not working out for him. So he returns to his roots, returns to his father's thing, and I thought that was just a pretty cool touch to take a character that we pretty much saw for the better part of two seasons and turn him into something completely different. That's the beauty of FWF is in order to switch things up and keep people interested in the best ways possible, sometimes you have to pull out all the stops. Matt legitimately pulled a custom and a switcheroo that I don't think a lot of people saw coming altogether. Um. But I do like how the story was built, even though I did mention that it affected the tag team division in a negative way, and we didn't see really any payoff for some of those things. But in terms of its own standalone storyline, it really stands apart and felt kind of like a Major Fest moment of, hey, this is no longer Goldust, this is Dustin Rhodes. I don't know, I personally enjoyed that. It was worth uh, mentioning, and I think Matt did a really good job of presenting it in that manner. Especially with the drama of the 10 count on top of that. Man, Goldust removed that makeup so quickly. (laughs) Anyway, we move on to the next match, which is a triple threat TLC match for the Interstate Championship. You have Christian versus Edge versus Gangrel. Um, I'll go ahead and say the ending of the match before I give my thoughts on it. Gangrel had been taken out of the equation, and essentially it was Edge and Christian in the ring. Edge was down, and Christian was inches away from pulling the belt down when Edge comes in with a steel chair wrapped in barbed wire and beats Christian not off, just off the ladder, but just down in general, covers him in blood, and uh, ends up placing the ladder over Christian, climbing to the top, securing it, and Edge finally has his feel-good story over the season, which it seemed like his woes never stopped uh, edges in particular, the character uh, since last year, we obviously had him as the underdog tag team division season uh, two started off with them finally getting their crowning achievement where edge and Christian win the tag titles, but edge immediately gets betrayed by Christian, which led to this storyline. Um, and so Edge was the only choice here. I think Matt knew that at the end of the day, and it executed very well. It was done in a very symbolic way on top of everything. And so, in that regards, I liked it. However, I have to I have to say it. One of Broski's strengths in Season 1 of FWF was the ability to use everyone. He legitimately found small sticks, big shticks, <laughs> big hogs, and used them to his advantage in general. But um, he had the ability to use everyone. Well, here in Season 2, that actually seems to be doing his undoing more than anything because he still feels like he should use everyone even though it doesn't seem like he knows how to build everyone properly um it seems like and i don't mean to say it like this but turmoil seems to have their own process that seems to work you really feel for the characters you get to know the characters they add plenty of characterization while still staying within the 30 minutes but broski style doesn't allow for that and so a lot of the storylines don't feel like they're built at all and it seemed like Edge and Christian was one of the storylines that was very well built. It was properly built. You want to see Edge get his redemption on Christian so badly but Broski couldn't help but throw Gangrel in there and I already I already talked about that to death in one of my articles I don't want to complain about it too much but I felt like Gangrel really didn't need to be in this match and that took me out of it a little bit I don't think it was the special moment that it could have been even though I do think Broski made the smart move of making Edge and Christian the final two who were battling for that climb up the ladder at the end so I think that was a smart call but I don't think Gangrel should have been anywhere near this match and that affected my view of it just a little bit but in typical broski fashion he really set the match up in a way and had time to work with it and it ended up winning me over towards the end of it but um i do think that is one of the problems i've had with turmoil all season is it's like okay we have a clear storyline and broski's like here here put this in there too and it's like you don't need to put that in there bro Um, but I do, I do really like that segment. I love the symbolism towards the end where like edge is finally like, stay in your place. I'm climbing to the top. And it just is a perfect topper on the story that we've had for Edge, not just in season two, but in season one as well, because it has been building that long. And so that's why I thought it was so important that Edge and Christian were in this alone, because they didn't need Gangrel to bring in that extra drama. It would have probably been even more dramatic if you didn't have some silly little alien vampire dude in there with them. Um, And that might get me some hate for saying that, but that's that's perfectly fine. Uh, I do give the the segment a thumbs up, though. I think the ending really saved it all for me personally. The next one, it might be one of my favorite segments of the night. It is Eddie Guerrero with China versus the one Billy Gunn. For one, the one Billy Gunn is one of my favorite gimmicks of all time. And he has arguably the best theme song of all time. I don't care who you are. It really is. And just any excuse to bring back Ow Billy <laughs> is just beautiful in its own right. But um obviously the ending ended up being China proves her loyalty to Eddie. Whenever she goes to uh she's on the apron, Billy Gunn walks over to make out with her, she kind of drops down and hangs him up on the on the ropes, allowing Eddie Guerrero to roll him up. It is kind of In its own way, a weird homage to the season one of FWF where it's like, yeah, I know we all like O'Billy and everything, but that's in the past. And China's moved on to Eddie, baby. And it's kind of a symbolic thing and I'm probably looking into it too much (laughs) trying to be the Dave Meltzer so hard. But it really is a kind of an outlook of leaving a bunch of stuff in the past. That seemed to be a theme for a lot of these matches on Broski's show, is a lot of the old gimmicks kind of getting shed and pushed to the back while new stuff is brought forward. And I thought that was really cool in itself. Um, you could argue for that for the last match as well, where Edge's losing ways finally got pushed to the back. And now he's that superstar that we all know he could and ended up becoming in real life. Anyway, I really liked that segment. It just made sense. And even though it was quick, sometimes it just needs to be quick. Especially with the next match, which is Shane McMahon versus Jeff Hardy. And going into this match, I was like, this just kind of feels like it was forced in here. And this whole time, uh, whenever during the draft, during the build-up, we're getting so hyped for Jeff Hardy. And it seems like nothing's being done. He's just the guy that's there. Uh, it's real-life WWE, in a sense. Um... But this is one of those matches where, as Matt was calling it, I got one over. Um, It was the match on the card that I will say changed my mind completely. And it just makes sense. It really does. Shane McMahon's known for doing risky stuff that he has no business doing. Getting thrown into the glass by Kurt Angle and it doesn't shatter. So he goes and gets thrown through the other one. Risking his life to make that big moment happen. Well, what do we know Jeff Hardy has? Exactly the same thing. The guy who's just crazy and dives off of stuff. So it just makes sense. Shane McMahon versus Jeff Hardy. And I'm sorry that if I badmouthed this little feud, because it didn't feel like it got built the way it should. But sometimes whenever you have a match like this, you don't need any build at all. And as he was calling it, it just kind of sounded like a spectacle, which in contrast with the Billy Eddie a Billy and Eddie all-story segment. It was a nice change of pace. Um, and Jeff, of course, hits a Swanton Bomb off the Termitron. Turmoiltron, or whatever you want to call it through tables multiple tables to put shane away which is just a spectacle in itself and when you see those two names on a card you wouldn't have it any other way so i think broski did a very good job of making do with what he had and even though it wasn't the best built ever not every story needs to have this big impact to just have a great match and this is if there was any match on the card that could pull that off in the best way i think it was this one personally Directly after that, though, we had a quick segment, which I won't comment on too much, but we have Hulk Hogan talking about, uh, hogs and all sorts of deals and talking about the new, new, new NWO <laughs> or whatever. Um, And we continue the trend of guest hosts by Arnold Schwarzenegger driving in the background on a hog of his own and being the guest host of Major Fest. And I may not always enjoy, and I think I haven't made this the biggest secret in the world, that I do enjoy the guest hosts. I think Beetlejuice and Kevin McAllister all added to their uh, selective pay-per-views in a good way. I don't, however, think that the whole Beetlejuice being introduced as a big segment And I know it was a little bit of a nod to whenever Jeff Jarrett hit the other Beetlejuice in WCW with the guitar and everything, but I don't think he should have been the main reason why, because then unbelievability happens, which, of course, it's a fig fed, so it doesn't need to be realistic, but I still have to suspend my belief quite a bit to believe somebody who's a stone-cold killer like Taz cares about... A Beetlejuice character enough to dive in front of the Creepy Cruiser for him. Uh, Which is just a ridiculous segment in itself, or a ridiculous saying in itself, if I'm being honest. But I do like the guest host because I do think they add to something to each show that they're on. And my whole point was, this is the biggest guest yet on the biggest show, and it just... Even though it didn't add a ton to it, just seeing him pop by, it was probably a nice little pop for the imaginary crowd and everything. And it just fit where it was at. Arnold Schwarzenegger driving by on a motorcycle when Hulk Hogan's entire gimmick for season one was his motorcycle or his hog. Um, And so I thought that was a nice little touch. And it's just kind of a little bit of a wink to those who have been around for a long time, I'm pretty sure next we had goldberg versus uh, stone cold in our dream match it's not a work rate match it's a slug fist um of course towards the end we had multiple fake outs refs getting knocked down as stone cold hits the stone cold stunner refs getting knocked down or not being up whenever goldberg hits his jackhammer and so essentially after the false finishes and everything it ends up being one-to-one in a non-existing kind of way if that makes sense so whenever it came down to it and stone cold hits that proverbial stone cold stunner And Goldberg doesn't go down. It just makes sense for him to hit three stutters uh, to finally pin Goldberg in a very spectacular fashion. It reminds me of uh, whenever Stone Cold was, or Big Show or somebody was talking about whenever they were working together and Stone Cold wanted to sell uh, Big Show as this big giant monster. And so Stone Cold hit him with a stunner, tried to pin him, kicked out. Hit him with another stunner, pinned him, kicked out. And so that was kind of the vibe I got from here here. Uh, It was just two big stars. You can never really have a satisfying way with one person winning and one person moving forward. Because at this time, I do think Goldberg and Stone Cold were on, on kind of similar perspectives of being bigger stars. But Stone Cold was the biggest star at this time in the Attitude Era. So it makes sense for him to win. But I'm glad that Matt... Had enough sense to give him his due and obviously hit three stutters on Goldberg, so I thought that was a nice touch. And then just the spectacle of Goldberg and uh, Stone Cold showing mutual respect after the match was cool in itself too. Uh, that was kind of a similar situation in Jericho versus Bret Hart in a submission match, and this is one of the first time where a big match ended in a screwy finish. Where I. I at first thought maybe that wasn't the best course of action, but it just definitely makes sense, and I'll get to that here in a second. Um, Jericho looks to have it in the bag as he has him in Alliance tamer, Tamer, but when Sunny, who was former Body Donna's manager, finds a new man in the form of Bret Hart, she fakes him out with the ring bell, and while Jericho is distracted, he gets laid out by Bret, and due to being out while being put into a submission hold, Bret Hart wins the match due to Jericho being out or passing out or submission. Whatever you want to call it. And so Bret wins kind of in a screwy way. And whenever you see Jericho and Bret Hart on paper, you don't kind of want to end that in a screwy way. But I don't think there was any way other than that that makes us leave this match in a satisfied manner. Because at least then you can be like, oh, he didn't get submitted, you know? Because on one side you have... Oh, Bret Hart would have never tapped out. And on the other side, you would have had, Oh, Jericho just got buried. We thought he was going to be the next big thing. Whereas this kind of gives both men an out while also giving a satisfying ending, opening up a new chapter. And so I actually really enjoyed this ending. It was certainly a major fest-worthy match. And I believe up to that point, it was probably a spectacle. Everybody got the wrestling prowess from these men that they wanted. But the screwy finish, I think it, it that was exactly what it needed to be. And so kudos to Matt for coming up with that finish. Um, and as it was uh, kind of highlighted earlier in the night, on top of all things, it makes other things that I might not have liked before a little bit more meaningful. And so kudos to that match for not just being what it was, but adding to other events in the process. Next, we have the main event. It is the Giant Brock Lesnar and Hogan all competing in a triple threat for the FWF championship match. Um, and off the uh, just reading that match off paper it just really felt like a colossal match. It deserved to be the main event. Um, and I really liked how in its own kind of weird way, there was an evolution type setup for the next big thing, only for him to realize that if he wanted to be the top guy, he was gonna have to overthrow Hulk Hogan. It was compelling, it made sense and it earned its spot. Whereas I was a little worried about Brock Lesnar for the first couple months, I think the slow build really helped it when he finally was like, no, I'm not going to be your lackey anymore. And so obviously this match is just a bunch of big men slapping meat. What? I didn't say that. And Brock eventually gets both men down, only to hit a double shooting star press. Talk about a major fest moment right there. Didn't break his neck or anything. Hit it perfectly to become the new FWF Championship. Uh, But a good moment is ruined whenever Hogan goes to hand Lesnar the title and Lesnar beats him down. Which leads to a very entertaining chain of events. Let me turn the page. I wrote my notes down on a piece of paper. Lesnar grabs the microphone and challenges anyone in the back to come and get his title. The Ultimate Warrior... (laughs) <laughs> Which in typical Broski fashion, Ultimate Warrior comes out, hits a quick flurry, only to be countered and F5 back into hiding as Lesnar beats him as well. Um, the way I kind of pictured it is whenever he's jumping back and forth and he's about to hit his splash. I pictured it as Brock getting to his feet real quick and kind of catching him in a fireman's carry, only to hit the F5 when he gets back to his feet. I think that would have been pretty cool. No matter how you do it, though, that quick little hype, Ultimate Warriors back to win again just to get destroyed, slaps him back down, Gifts, gets the crowd hype, but gets us, gives us a dose of reality at the same time. We rinse and repeat the process. He challenges again with Stone Cold answering the call. It makes it seem like Austin might have it in the bag this time, and we were gonna end it the same way we won last year with Stone Cold uh, winning the championship and ending everybody, uh, ending Major Fest on a high note, sending the fans home happy. Obviously, that didn't happen, and once again, all it took was an F5 for Lesnar to retain. That's two championships, he, two cha- former champions he defeated. In retention. He challenges again and for the second time in a row, second year in a row, Hulk Hogan comes out sporting the red and yellow. uh, And he even gets the furthest. He beats down Brock Lesnar, gets him on the ground, hits a leg drop, but Lesnar kicks out at one. Lesnar stops the momentum just like that, hits an F5, and retains the championship once again. Satisfied that he's beaten every turmoil champion in existence, Lesnar's about to end the show when an ambulance that we've been seeing throughout the entire season, which I can vouch for that, um, which I like that little touch to it. I thought that was very cool that it is something that's kind of been winking at you all season. And even though there were times where it seemed like we got an answer to it, we actually didn't. And it backs up to the ring and reveals the man who built Turmoil Season 1 in his own weird way, Scott Steiner. And he comes out, hits Steiner line after Steiner line, hits the Frankensteiner, hits the screwdriver, and after a Steiner recliner is locked in... Scott Steiner in Season 2 as the FWF Champion, which I think is absolutely symbolic, even though Hulk Hogan won Superstar of the Year last year. To me, Scott Steiner, his weird backstage antics, uh, his promos, that was what built turmoil into the show it was today. And so for him to win Season 2 and kind of give that nod to Season 1, but in a new perspective, I really enjoyed that touch, and I'm pretty sure that at this point, I could be wrong, Steiner might be the most decorated champion in turmoil history. I'm probably wrong on that, but I just, I wanted, I needed to throw that out there. Cause I'm pretty sure Shawn Michaels won triple crown at some point. Either way, that doesn't matter. Um, I do think that was a nice touch and it definitely sends the fans home happy. Everybody who's been around in FWF since day one or just binge listened to it and everything gets that extra little good for him, man. That's the, that's the turmoil guy. Um, I think that would be a big deal for Season 2, not to give any ideas. Or Season 3, rather. That would be a big deal, as if Thrill Zone happened to get their hands on Scott Steiner. But, as Matt gets comfortable with this new format, who knows? We might see some Scott Steiner promos in Season 3. But that's something I can talk about a little bit at the end of the uh, podcast here. I do think... Overall, this was a very great show, and even though there were big details uh, that I think affected the show going into it, for what it was and for what was built, I think from start to finish, it was a very intriguing show all the way through, and so as of recording this, I've only listened to Turmoil show. I've listened to it twice now. Um, I'm about to listen to Thrill Zones for the first time, and I am not seeing how... They can Well, I, I can see how they can compete with it, but it is going to be a hard show to beat is what I'm saying. So, into Thrill Zone. First and foremost, I want to apologize for the quality change because I am doing this in an office at my workplace as opposed to being in my office at home, which is more set up for personal recordings like this. Uh, so, if there's a slight echo in the background, I want to immediately apologize for that because uh, it definitely isn't intentional. Um And I also want to apologize for getting this audio file a little later than expected. I know I said on Twitter that I was hoping to have it by Sunday Uh, at some point. I don't really recall saying an exact time, but uh, obviously that wasn't the case. And obviously it is a little bit later than Sunday. So hopefully um, you guys can forgive me for that and we can move forward. But Thrill Zone's version of Major Fest Hits... Uh, for different reasons in its own uh, specific way. Sometimes in a very good way, sometimes in a bad way, unfortunately. And uh, I guess we should just start from the beginning. Let's go ahead and do it. We obviously open up the contest with an absolute barn burner of a match. Something I would be excited to watch in my own personal time. Uh, Taka Michinuku versus Rey Mysterio. And there's not really too big or complex of a storyline going on in this one. It's uh, th- There is a bit of a build to it because for the past couple months we've been seeing Rey Mysterio want to be the work, ma- the work rate king or something like that. Uh, that's not the... Uh, the official tagline per se, but that's kind of what I've been tagging it personally is that he's trying to be the guy that steals the show. And uh, whenever Takuma Chinuku versus Rey Mysterio was officially announced, I actually got very excited about it, especially if you're putting it at the start of the show. I think that's a very good placement on the card. Uh, It's a fast paced match. That's going to get the crowd out into the entire show very early on and uh arguably my biggest pop of the night was when taka's theme hit because it's so good to hear that theme song again i can't remember um the last time i heard it but it, it just bring back so many good memories playing video games watching uh early wrestling because this was early wrestling for me personally uh, and it was just a fantastic feel all the way around. I do think it was a little bit of a cop out to um, have Taka Machinuku win with, uh, you know, holding the top rope and rolling at Rey Mysterio. It kind of robbed us of that significant finish that we were going to get, but you can't have all bangers uh, in finish. And I think I like this move for a couple of ways, even though I would have liked to see a clean finish, maybe have Taka take out the work great king and have him be that person that tries to (laughs) up his last performance each time around in season three should we get that uh but having him be a bit of a heel maybe recreating a little bit of a samurai sword um val venus type situation no i'm just kidding (laughs) but seriously it was it's 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 just a small little nitpick Um, But it was a very good match, and based on how it was described, it it did its job. It's exactly what it's supposed to do. It hypes up the crowd, gives you a nice little back and forth, and even though it didn't end the way exactly you would have liked, it ended in a pretty definitive way, and so that's fine. Not all the matches on this card can say that, uh, but we will get to that when we get to that. Match number two is Ric Flair versus Bam Bam Bigelow, um, and we'll just go ahead and do the finish before I give my thoughts on the overall build up and the match and how it was presented. Um, pretty much, Bam Bam survives an early onslaught from Ric Flair and kind of takes advantage of the match, uh, but slowly as the match progresses, uh, Flair not only comes back and wins, but he does it in the most Ric Flair way possible by pulling down Bam Bam's pants, revealing a man thong, embarrassing him, and rolling him up in spite of this. And there were two key points to this rivalry that I absolutely love, but we'll get to that in a second. I just want to comment on the beauty of seeing Ric Flair get his redemption as we went through this season. I know I've said that in article format and everything like that, but just seeing the old withered down Ric Flair and then the excitement you get even from a fictional wrestling fig when he finally sparks back up into Ric Flair. It's just a beautiful thing and it shows how infectious the Ric Flair persona is. And uh, now he has to take on this huge opponent and I like the idea that Markin. Uh, Max and whoever planned this match never forgot about Bam Bam's size. And they kept mentioning that throughout the course of this. Usually whenever somebody's about to get their revenge, they just beat somebody down. And it's it could be this little two-foot, two-inch guy just beating down this absolute giant because he's getting his revenge. But they never forgot that Ric Flair is going to into this getting his life back together. He is the smaller man here. And by all means, Bam Bam should still have... The advantage in terms of the size, the strength, the power, and they never forgot about that. And so he wins, but it's not in this dominating fashion. It's not in the patent Ric Flair figure four, make him tap out kind of way. Um, He rips his pants off and embarrasses him. And it's such a Ric Flair way to get the victory, get even, adds a funny moment, but also memorable and a feel-good story all the way around, all the way wrapped into one. I think this is one of the most beautiful told stories on the entire Thrill Zone brand. And I give kudos to Mark and Max. I imagine, Mark, this was a... Uh, dream type story for you where Ric Flair kind of finds his flair again. But I'm not entirely sure. I really enjoyed the story all the way through the season. And at no point did I drop off. I was hooked the entire way through. So kudos to that. And I think this was the payoff we all wanted for good old Ric Flair. Next, we have the Lawlers, which is Jerry Lawler and Brian Christopher versus the Boogie Knights. And of course, we have the story where Jerry Lawler tries to take them under his wing and take them away from their original identity. And it's it's kind of a good storyline on paper. I don't know if I really enjoyed the execution as much as I probably should have. But that's irrelevant because the match here that was on display uh, was displayed in a way that made it more interesting than in on, in my honest opinion, it had any business being. And that's because they had special timekeeper Kevin Costner. They had Bill Murray coming out with the Lawlers. They had the Boogie Knights having Sigourney Reaver on their side. And uh, since it took place in Hollywood, this was kind of the the stars come out at night uh, to, to, you know, take place in this matchup. And uh, you had Arnold Schwarzenegger over on Turmoil's version of Major Fest. Well, Thrillzone cranked it up to Absolute 11 and made up for their lack of star power in terms of actors and actresses and guests, uh, hosts. They, they did it in an absolutely new way. We hadn't seen in FWF this season and included three stars, not just on paper, not just uh, getting them for name value, but included them in matches and various things. And I know the, the argument is immediately going to be like, well... Beetlejuice took his bumps, too. But this is an entirely different thing. He was kind of included in a goofy storyline. Not only was Bill Murray here, not only was Sigourney Weaver here, not only was Kevin Costner here, but they were included in the storyline in a way that made sense. Like Beetlejuice, who apparently Taz is his best friend. But I digress. Either way, the star-studded affair gives us a taste of Hollywood in every way. Kevin Costner pulls Bill Murray off the apron, and Sigourney Weaver distracts Jerry Lawler, all allowing the Boogie Knights to hit their finish on Brian Brian Christopher Christopher to secure the victory. Afterwards, they have a big dance party, which includes Bill Murray uh, going against Jerry Lawler after Jerry Lawler's disappointed in him as his guest, and... uh, not only does Bill Murray punch Jerry Lawler, but we have a feel-good moment where they're all trying to get Bill Murray to dance, and uh, he cha- they change it to the Ghostbusters theme, and all dance to that. And so it's just a like, fun, uh, Major Fest-worthy moment where the stars and wrestlers combine to make an awesome moment. And I think that was the true thing about this. Much like how Broski had a couple moments where there were storylines where I didn't really care for or matches I didn't really care for that kind of stole the show for me. This is one of those things for uh, Thrill Zone. That they actually turned something that was kind of like, eh, yeah, that's there, but I don't really care for it into something that I was like, huh, I'm going to walk away talking about this more than half of the other matches. And so kudos to the writing team for setting up that truly major fest caliber moment. We go into Zuna versus Mike awesome in a and I know I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Tatagata prison match. <laughs> um and we'll just uh Read what I have here in my notes. Awesome collapses a layer of the prison by power bombing Zuna into it. But Zuna kicks out in time, and time and time again he keeps kicking out and keeps kicking out. No matter what awesome seems to throw at him, Zuna always seems to, you know, get back into it. And eventually he reverses an awesome bomb off the top of the cage and instead hits a Samoan drop off the top. Now, both men are laying there, and that's where we get the surprise entrant, Psycho Sid, who comes out and pulls Mike Awesome on top of Zuna, which, of course, leads to Mike Awesome picking up the victory. Psycho Sid then proceeds to declare the Towers of Terror are here, and he officially joins the House of Pain. I'll start off by saying that we have seen Psycho Sid in the FWF before, and I never remember getting this excited for him. I think they really found a part where he could thrive, and that's as a lackey for the House of Pain. But they did it in a very exciting and unexpected way. I never predicted in a million years that anybody would have drafted him after the uh the failure that we had for him in season one. At least that's how I viewed him. He would definitely wasn't the most interesting character. He definitely didn't pose the threat after he kind of got ran down in the first couple weeks. And so not only is he the most relevant, not only is he the most exciting that he's been, but it sets up for the future should they continue to you know, go into season three and they look just as formidable as ever. Um, it, it, it maybe gives us a wink that the House of Pain is going to continue even after events that we're going to discuss later on in this uh, particular portion of the podcast. Next, we have Cactus Jack versus New Jack, the hardcore Jack match um, for 50% ownership of the Thrill Zone brand. Obviously, we know Cactus Jack or Mick Foley wasn't doing his job, and he was the corrupt general manager. And now New Jack, who's now rich because of money he wink wink inherited, uh, is going to... Um, you know, put things back right. And so it leads to the match between these authority figures uh, battling for 50% of ownership for Thrill Zone to see who kind of remains in control. And obviously it's a hardcore spectacle put on by two hardcore legends. Uh, Throughout the match, we see all three faces of Foley come into play, which I thought was a brilliant move. And it ends up uh, that Mick Foley gets tossed down off a high place Onto a net made of barbed wire that had been introduced earlier in the match. New Jack takes a leap of faith off of the high place through the net, and this leads to both men just being completely out of it. But since New Jack is on top, you hear the one, two, three and New Jack keeps his 50% ownership of the Thrill Zone brand. And there was a bunch of things I liked about this. The high stakes for one, 50% ownership of Thrill Zone. That could legitimately throw it in favor of the House of Pain altogether again and just restart the events from the beginning. Or if New Jack finishes it, he could continue the change that he's been working on. So the stakes were high. It's a hardcore spectacle that is believable because as I said, these are two hardcore legends. There was a beautiful build to it uh with the conspiracy theories with Mick Foley you know kind of you're not sure about him at first but then it's revealed he's corrupt and so it's just all of these interesting details surrounding what honestly could have been a ma- uh, a show stealing match we've seen Mick Foley's work in the past. We've seen what New Jack is capable of. We saw how popular he was on the uh, Thrill Zone brand led by Brian last year. And so, I don't know. This is just one of the show stealers, in my opinion, because it it just would have been a treat to sit down and watch. And everybody's going to be hanging on every little action because of how big the stakes are. So, very well done in pretty much every aspect regarding that. Of course, Thrill Zone continues to play the Hollywood card. You see Clarence Mason come up and serve Mark Henry some papers. Uh, I thought there was a little thing suggested there because it said Mark Henry glares over at Bam Bam. So I didn't know if Bam Bam was maybe turning on his head and... Going against the House of Pain at the time. I don't think we ever got any clarification on that, but maybe we did. Uh, Regardless, I I just took it as more star-studded affairs. The stars are coming out here at Hollywood. That sort of thing that we've seen at WrestleMania in the past. Next, we have Rock Hard Steve Boston versus Owen Hart for the Interstate Championship. And much like the Brothers of Destruction match on Turmoil, it was exactly what it needed to be. It was Rock Hard Steve Boston coming out and destroying Owen Hart to become the new Interstate Champion. Uh, It's exactly what I expected. It didn't need to be anything else. even though I'm personally not the biggest fan of Rock Hard Steve Boston, to me, it's just more Stone Cold. And with how much Stone Cold we've seen over the past two seasons of FWF, it's just nauseating to me personally at this point. I, I want to hold out for something new, but I do see the appeal of Rockhard Steve Boston. I'm not a complete knob. Um... It was creative with how they came up with it. It's a Boston version of Steve uh, Steve, Stone Cold Steve Austin and everything. And I I really like that creativity so I can't rag on it too much. And just seeing him, a fan favorite like that, come out and destroy a hated heel is always going to be a big pop. So I don't really have too many thoughts on that. I think it was a nice touch. I think it sends the fans home happy in that regard. So that's all I'm going to really comment on that because as I said, I am the wrong guy to talk about with Rock Hard Steve Boston because the only Part I care about with him is the come again because that's absolutely hilarious. I think uh, the two minds behind that are absolutely creative for coming up with that one, even though it's not my favorite part of their show. And next, you have Kurt Angle finally defending his hardcore championship in a hardcore title match uh, against Balls Mahoney, who is the savior of the hardcore division, hopefully. Um, you got Angle and Blackman as they attempt to hold Balls Mahoney's pizzas that he ordered earlier in the night hostage to goad him out of winning the title. But this backfires because eventually Balls shows that he's willing to sacrifice those same pizzas to not only put Angle through the table, but win the match. He becomes the new hardcore championship and officially releases Kurt Angle's stranglehold over the hardcore division. And it becomes the hardcore division again. But it's not. It isn't just in there. The Sandman comes down to the ring, brings Balls Mahoney his pizza, and we have the most hype pop of the night where Balls Mahoney finally gets his piece of pizza, which, if you're listening to this right now, there is a pull-up, and we are doing the end-of-year FWF Awards. That is on the mark-out moment of the year award, with with how much it was built up by Mark. I think... He, his uh, presentation this year definitely doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. The presentation all around is beautiful, but the way Mark in particular popped, uh, hyped up that moment really worked for me personally. Uh, But I loved how I called, at the very beginning, Balls Mahoney being the hero. And uh, it was just one of the most big interwoven storylines in the midst of it. He was the hero not just for the hardcore division, but he helped uncover the conspiracy surrounding the House of Pain. And just the way they incorporated Balls Mahoney made him, in my opinion, one of the breakout stars of the year. It was a beautiful put-together story. It was a beautiful ending. And just the idea of not him only winning a championship, but finally getting the thing that had... (laughs) been slapped out of his hand time and time again, was just an absolute masterclass in storytelling, which we don't unfortunately get for this next segment, which is Sting versus Shawn Michaels. And I'll just go ahead and read what the the little ending part is. At some point, both men are knocked down, and due to both men being down in a pinning position with their shoulders down and everything, the ref begins to count. Unfortunately, they don't see that Sting's shoulders are down, and so they count it as a pinfall victory for Shawn Michaels. And I'll start off by saying what I absolutely loved about this match. It is something we saw coming for the entire season all the way around. It was such beautiful storytelling with um, little winks here and there, not a ton of action behind it. There was mind games being played. There was all sorts of little hints and nods here and there. But it was the most minuscule things telling this huge story, but building it up in a way in which everybody was ready to see it. And so the fact that they took their time with it, the time that it was a slow trudge, and we finally get to see these guys come to blow... And it ends in such an unsatisfactory way. Normally, I would defend the person's right to be able to do some sort of ending like this. I defended it for Bret Hart Jericho. It made sense. We wouldn't want to know who wins... And I'm kind of wanting to push towards that way, but I just, I can't defend it. I'm nitpicking in this regard because of the fact that because they took the entire season to build it, there really wasn't a payoff here. And so it just seemed pointless to spend all of that extra time building it when there was no feel-good moment at the end. Yeah, Shawn Michaels technically walked away with the victory, but to me, that's kind of what the last segment had. It had tons of balls. This one had... A lack of balls in a sense because they weren't willing to pull the trigger for either side and I could look at the positive portion of things and be like oh yeah they're just leaving it open should we have a season three maybe it's something we can visit in the future maybe it's a match that'll win a segment of the year or something like that but I don't know just on the grand stage of them all I thought there was a lost opportunity here and it's just going to kind of be a minuscule fart in the midst of a. it's going to be forgotten in the midst of a show which talking about Sting versus Shawn Michaels it shouldn't be be something that you just forget the only thing i'm gonna be remember it for is it's a giant disappointment i think they should have pulled the trigger and either had Shawn michaels win in a dirty fashion but in a definitive way or sting should have just won <laughs> for whatever reason i don't feel like broski brian uh mark or anybody likes sting because they always like leave him in In the worst way possible in these storylines. And that's just a bit of frustration I needed to get out there. Because I had high hopes for this match. This was one of the matches I was looking forward to seeing. How they pull it off. Because it's... There's the quotes. They had that beautiful quote about... Even the God can be the devil in the darkest days. Or something like that. And... I don't know. It was just a lost opportunity in many ways. And it was just very disappointing. Um... But we go from that to Legion of Doom and Dennis Rodman's versus The Outsiders and Triple H. I actually don't mind how they ended this match, unfortunately. I do think it's kind of annoying that they ended two matches in very weird ways back-to-back. With Sting and Shawn Michaels having that, oh, he won, but not really, wink. And I think... In that regard, they were trying to send home everybody happy. I don't think you should do multiple matches like that with that kind of ending in the world. But at the same time, I'm not going to smack them around. Because in this particular instance, it didn't give us the same kind of... uh Match That we we pretty much had last month anyway when they won the tag team titles. We already had that big tag team title moment. That was our WrestleMania moment back at the last pay-per-view. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall becoming the new tag team championships. We really didn't need it. I thought it was brilliant storytelling just to have Marlena kick Rodman in the nuts. So that the outsiders in eight Triple H get DQ'd, that way they won't be in the building. It stacks the odds even more against Macho Man. That way we look to see how they're gonna possibly pay that off. And so I, I don't mind it being uh, that particular you know decision personally. Which finally, of course, leads us to Macho Man versus Mark Henry for the FWF Championship. Um, I'll just kind of go and get my notes. Of course, one, uh, the the odds are completely stacked against Macho Man. That is until the four horsemen with Ric Flair come out to even the odds. They help Macho, and they ensure a more even match. But even so, it's not completely. You still have Mike Awesome, Psycho Sid, holding Miss Elizabeth. Marlena keeps sticking her nasty fingers in the whole situation. That is until The Rock returns, which a lot of people called. I have seen this. But I... I don't know. We'll see. I'll, I'll comment on that in a second. When Henry threatens to do the world's strongest slam that we saw break the rocks back in the first pay-per-view on Macho Man Randy Savage, Rock comes down and cleans house. Through this, Savage takes advantage to win the title for Mark Henry. And the first thing I'll say, this was a beautiful story all the way through. Uh, in the six months, we went from Macho Man, not sure if he knew what if that he had what it took anymore. And it was it was a crushing his defeat in the beginning and maybe for a while there it seemed like he was gonna join the house of pain and so there was all these neglects there was all these doubts and in spite of everything the cards being stacked against him time and time again he gets his redemption he gets his girl and he gets his fwf championship and this has been the first time that i've been excited for the rocket all of fwf literally couldn't care less about him in thrill zone at all last year i was actually kind of happy when they broke his back in the first one because they don't give him that rock personality that he has so it's just another guy that we're supposed to care about that isn't being backed up but the way they presented him made me care about him so I could say that about it and just the full year storyline in every way invested really made us wait for that payoff it was it's it's the exact reason why I hated Sting versus Shawn Michaels so much that I love this storyline you waited for the entire year for that payoff and you got it and so I, I just got sent home so much happier than I did with uh, with uh, turmoil's main event personally. And so that leads me to try and make my decision while thinking between these two shows. I think in terms of excitement, they both brought forth an equal amount of matches that got me excited. Uh, They had plenty of matches that I wasn't excited for that ended up changing my mind throughout it. And then there were matches that I was looking forward to that kind of were big duds, big doos, which I just talked into the ground. And so I'm not going to go too much further into that. uh, But I definitely give the presentation factor in favor of Thrill Zone. They really went the extra mile in incorporating all of their Hollywood stars into the match. They had the little recaps uh, before each match. The match. I don't know. It's just seeing where Mark was at the beginning of the season and seeing this presentation, you definitely can see the big difference. And so I'm proud of Mark for not only making those adjustments, but doing these storylines justice and the way he presented a lot of them really helped. The same for Broski. He didn't have the best build at times, but just his overall presentation factor. I think if anybody's being affected by the lack of weekly shows and their storytelling and the 30-minute time limits for these pay-per-views and everything, it's definitely Broski. But I think he handled himself pretty well through the whole season, and now that... Um, He had the time to work with. He really just let it all fly. And I really enjoyed both shows all the way through. Uh, It's hard to pick a winner. But I think the one that sent me home the most happy. Was the one that built storylines for the whole year. And really just had those satisfying uh, conclusions. The Balls Mahoney storyline. The Macho Man finally getting his redemption storyline. The smart choices to go past things that we might not have cared about. Or I had already gotten their conclusion like the the click winning their uh, championships at the last pay-per-view and stuff like that and just even though there was a big glaring problem for me I think the the idea that most of their conclusions having me walked away satisfied as opposed to just being like I can see why they did that um makes me give the major fest victory to the Thrill Zone brand who ends the pay-per-view battle for the year. Four points, four pay-per-views to Thrill Zones 2. Which, of course, the point system is not over yet. We got to decide who won the overall year. And it's a lot closer than I think a lot of people are giving it credit for. And so I'll take this moment to wrap it up and say, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure to let me know what you think of this Um this presentation this podcast these thoughts i might have went a little long at times uh, but this is a new format we're going to try because sometimes this year it has been taking me a lot to get these articles out i'm a married man now i'm in wisconsin i'm doing all sorts of new things and so finding seven eight hours to write these articles sometimes isn't on my to-do list all the time and so i'm working on ways to improve it and i think an audio format works um But once more, if you're listening to this podcast, by this point, a tweet has already been sent out and you need to go vote on the FWF end of year rewards, which we will feature in the next one. We will tell you the superstar of the year. We will tell you the pay-per-view of the year. We'll tell you the storyline of the year, the markout moment of the year, all sorts of goodness, and you get to decide them all. And each one of the, the categories is worth a point and will help decide who the winner of FWF Season 2 is. So thank you guys so much for participating. Thank you guys so much for supporting these guys and letting them do awesome stuff like this all the time. And thank you so much for letting me feel like the Dave Meltzer of the FWF. But until next time, oh my gosh, it's so cool. I'll see you in the next one, guys. Later.